You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Good evening. Tonight I will be reading from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a special day. You can be seated. Yeah, thank you. Uh, This is a special day. Uh, uh, This is a, a day in our calendar where we remember and celebrate our mothers, and uh, some of you here tonight are mothers, many of you, um, some of you are pregnant now, um, maybe pregnant even for the first time. Some of you, this is a really special day because your mothers are still with you, we praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that some of you, hopefully most of you, have a good relationship with your mothers. But this is a difficult day as well for some, because uh, there are some who are single mothers, There are those who are struggling with things like infertility. There are those who've lost a child. Uh, Those whose mothers are not doing well right now, they are ill. Those whose mothers maybe have even passed away uh, in the last year. Those who have a strained relationship with their mother. And so though this day is special and we do celebrate our mothers, we recognize that it can be a difficult day for some. And so I would just love to pray again real quickly for both of those realities, and uh, then we'll begin our time in Exodus. Let's bow our heads together. God, we approach you on behalf of the mothers whom you've entrusted with the care of precious little ones. And we thank you for creating each mom that's here tonight with a unique combination of gifts and talents. We thank you for the sacrifice, the deep sacrifice that each mom gives for her children We thank you for the gift of time that moms give to their children. We thank you for their tirelessness, their perseverance, their devotion. And we pray that you would give each mom here tonight strength. Help her to see that in every task, though it may feel mundane, that there is eternal cosmic significance that you have placed on motherhood. Help her to understand that the most radical, world-changing events may be happening anonymously in their home. Help her to forgive those who undermine her significance because her work is so many times hidden. Or we acknowledge that even amid our grateful celebration tonight, many women come into this day with restless spirits, reluctant to name the difficulties of this day. And for some, this day brings the sorrowful awareness of their own inability to conceive children at this time. And we pray for them. We pray for those who have suffered miscarriages, those fatigued by fertility treatments, those struggling through the process of adoption. Lord, we ask that you would draw your tender spirit near them. For some, this day is marked by loneliness and grief as one who has lost a child. And for some, this is a day that 
surfaces ongoing tensions that exist within their personal relationships and families. And we ask for healing from those wounds of the past. And if it would be your will, a path of forgiveness for both wrongs experienced and committed and and even the rebuilding of trust that would be forged anew in honesty and authenticity and love. And Lord, this, this is a day in which we honor all motherly figures. Grant them strength and perseverance to carry on their work. Help them to rest in the knowledge that they are but stewards of your children and that only your spirit can produce change in the hearts of each of their children. Lord, mostly we pray that each mother finds rest in you and your gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I am uh, not, I guess, old enough to have seen this when it first came out in real time, but it's one of the most famous clips uh, that uh, if you're familiar with the show, I Love Lucy, um, that is probably out there. And it's the... It's the scene in, in the episode where Lucy and her friend are working at the chocolate factory. Do you know this scene? And uh, as it starts, things are going fine. They're, they're getting the chocolates where they need to go. But at some point, things go haywire. And they can't catch up with the amount of chocolate that's coming down the conveyor belt and things just start to get out of hand really quickly. Lucy starts eating some of the chocolates. It just becomes a a big, big mess. And I was thinking about that scene because I've seen it before. Again, I I didn't grow up watching I Love Lucy. I love the show, but I just didn't grow up watching it. But um, that scene in I Love Lucy is a lot like our hearts. And here's what I, I mean. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, uh, once said that you and I, our hearts, are like idol factories. By the way, every time I hear John Calvin or read that, I think of the I Love Lucy scene because that's really what I envision is is this, um, this idol factory uh, of things that are being produced that, that you and I can't really keep under control. We try to do things with it, and Lucy tried to eat the chocolates, right? We try to hide it. We try to act like it's not there, but, but we look to a lot of lesser things for comfort and for pleasure and for approval and for control and, and freedom. That, that scene in that show is a picture of our hearts. Our hearts are like that. We pump out idols. And I think if we were honest, for, for some of you that have walked the, the Christian uh, journey for a period of time, we've all experienced that those idols never ever give what they promise. They always fall short of what they promise. Why is that? I wonder if you've ever asked that question about those things, like why is it that the things that I pursue apart from God are in the, in the place of God always fall short. And then really the question that I I need to ask my heart a lot more is, is there a way for me to experience real comfort, real pleasure, real joy in the right way? And, And then the question that follows is, why am I not doing that? 
Why don't we do that? If there is a way for you and I to experience real freedom, real comfort, real approval, wouldn't we want to go after that? But we don't. I don't. A culture believes that freedom is doing whatever you want. But the Bible, which is the the book that that Christians look at for direction and for insight and and, and really for hope, we, we see in the Bible that it defines freedom as actually living within boundaries. Now that, I know, probably sounds counterintuitive to you. Because the second you start to hear things like boundaries, you think of things like fences. You think of restriction. And actually, it would be wrong to say that boundaries aren't fences or restrictions, but I wonder if we have the wrong idea about how to get free. One of the earliest places in the Bible that we find an example of this is in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 outlines one of the most famous passages in all of the scriptures. Culturally, most people know about this. It's, it's as familiar as things like the 23rd Psalm and I mean, other, other well-known things in the scripture. And if, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you will have heard of this too. And it's, it's something called the Ten Commandments. Um, the Bible calls the Ten Commandments the law of God. And again, there's another word. When the word law comes up, we start thinking about the things that we break and get in trouble with. <laughs> you ever got a ticket before, right? I mean, the law is why you got the ticket. But there's something different that God wants to show us, even in his directives here in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, He's, he's, he's going to show us, and my, our prayers for this series is that we'll see this, is that in him expressing his heart and his character as the lawgiver, that through those things he intends to give us abundant life and true freedom. Because in the original context, the Ten Commandments weren't even given to the Israelites to to help them get out of Egypt. That wasn't why God gave them the Ten Commandments. God gave them the Ten Commandments to say, here's how you stay free. Isn't that interesting? So beginning this week, we are starting a 10-week series looking at one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible and even in culture on the Ten Commandments to see how God wants us to be free, how he wants us to experience his freedom. And so we begin that tonight, and as we do that, I want to invite you to see two things. First, God's grace precedes obedience. God's grace precedes obedience. And second, God's supremacy fosters freedom. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, look with me, if you would, beginning there in verse 1 of Exodus 20, that's where we'll begin tonight. Now, sermon series on the Ten Commandments often don't start with verse 1 or verse 2. Usually picks up with verse 3. It makes sense that if the sermon series is on the Ten Commandments, start with the first commandment. I actually think, though, that much of the misunderstanding 
around the Ten Commandments and frankly all of the commands of Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament have to do with the fact that we miss a very important pattern in the Scriptures. And we see it here right off the bat in Exodus 20. Verse 1 is not, and verse 2, they are not throwaway verses. Okay, they set everything up. So look with me there if you would. Let me read that for us again. Here's what it says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So here's my contention tonight. You will not understand the Ten Commandments unless you understand the first two verses of Exodus 20. Notice what's happening here before, let me just say that again, before God gives his people these instructions, the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of something. Now at the end of chapter 19, Moses has stopped speaking to the Israelites. He is, he's been addressing them, he's been talking to them. But something changes as we move into chapter 20, and this is what it is. God himself is going to speak to the people through these commandments. And these are the first words that God himself speaks to his people. He says, I am the Lord your God. Now, why does God start off by saying that? Do you think anyone there that was hearing it for the first time didn't know that it was God speaking to them? I doubt it. Here's what's going on. God wanted to remind a very forgetful people of him and, and the concept that we struggle with too, and it's this, I am God Almighty. I am the sovereign Lord. I possess, I own all of heaven and earth and all that is in it. That includes you, by the way. Or maybe we could say it this way. God is saying, you belong to me. Now, if we stop there, many of us would be um, really conflicted, I think. Because honestly, even for those of us that have walked with God for many years, we struggle with a God who says, you are not your own. In fact, some of what this leads to is why some people see God as a distant and tyrannical and restrictive taskmaster. Right? If, if, if there is a God and that God says, I own you, you belong to me, I'm your boss... And then he goes on to say, here's what you should be doing. Like, here are the rules. Here's the commandments. I get it. I get why people would think, if that was the whole story, that God was just a taskmaster, just looking for us to make a mistake. In fact, I think if, if that's all that we thought was true, we would see the Ten Commandments themselves as ways to keep God in our good graces, maybe, to keep him happy with us through obeying them. But I want you to notice what God says right after he says, I am the Lord your God. 
He says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, when God says, I brought you out of Egypt, don't miss that word you. God is speaking personally. God is speaking intimately to his people here. And though he may have been speaking to a large group, and again, by proxy, he's speaking to us, even tonight in a a group like this, don't miss that God is saying you personally. He's saying, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is addressing people, his children, in his covenant community here. And so what is he saying? Well, we have to remember the story of the Israelites a little bit. Let me do a real quick recap for, for you just so this makes sense. God's people had been under the rule of cruel leaders for hundreds of years and then enter into our story in the book of Exodus, the man Moses, the prophet Moses. Moses is told by God to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let the Israelites go, Moses' people to go so that they might be free to worship him, worship God. And if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that Moses went to Pharaoh many times, pleaded with him multiple times. God sends plagues, tries all kinds of things, which by the way, are, was God's intention to be merciful towards Pharaoh. But in the end, Pharaoh would not relent until the very end. And eventually Pharaoh said, just go. But his people, Moses' people, the Israelites, were freed. And so God comes to his people here in Exodus 20, and I want you to notice what he's saying first. He is not saying first, obey me. He is saying first, I am the Lord because I am your rescuer. You have been liberated by my mercy. You have been saved by my grace. I have brought you out of slavery into freedom. And by the way, God isn't just talking about physical slavery here. He's talking about a whole, like like their spiritual, physical, all of us brought them into this place of freedom. And this brings me to the first thing I want you to see this evening, God's grace precedes obedience. Let let me connect the dots for you here. The point of verses one and two, again, is that obedience to the law for the believer is always in the context of a relationship of grace for the believer. Again, we said earlier, if you get verses one and two, It's the key to understanding all of the Ten Commandments. So again, we could say it this way. Let me just say it one more time. If we're going to talk about what God says, here's how you obey. And this is like what brings freedom and flourishing for you. Obedience to the law for a Christian is always in the context of a relationship of grace. God is describing a relationship of grace in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. See, the law was not something that if we obeyed it, we are brought into a relationship with God. It's the way that the relationship is expressed once he has 
by grace brought us into his kingdom. God's grace comes first. His mercy is what motivates our duty. His mercy is what motivates our disciplines. We submit to God's command, not because we are attempting to earn his compassion, earn his kindness, but because we already have it. God's grace precedes obedience. It precedes duty. Now, if you would look with me at verse 3. Here we encounter the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. God's grace precedes this command, okay? This is something we're going to need to remind ourselves each week. But here's what's interesting. Even God was needing to remind the Israelites of this. These are the people he had just freed from hundreds of years of slavery. And in our story, we find a nation of a few million former slaves that are set free but not living free. Why do you think God brought them the Ten Commandments? They weren't living free. They may have been set free, but they were not living free. They were committing, apparently they were committing adultery. They were stealing from one another. They were coveting. They were lying. They were not raising their children in the Lord. They were worshiping false gods. Though they were set free... They were not choosing to live free, so God, in his mercy, speaks to them. And after reminding them of their rescue through his grace, he comes to them, and this is his first commandment. Let me read that again for us. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther, another great reformer, says of this first commandment this. This is his quote. This commandment is the very first, highest, and best. And listen to this. From which all the others proceed, in which they exist, and by which they are directed and measured. What's Luther saying? He's saying in in some way, every command that follows this one, so commandments 2 through 10, are essentially different perspectives on the same thing on commandment number one. We could say it this way. Every sin that you and I commit is a violation of the first commandment. When we break any of the commands themselves, we're breaking this one first. Now, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, it really has the meaning of in front of me. And what God is reminding them here is this, and this gets at the crux of what this command is about. There is no such thing as worshiping other gods behind big G God's back. God sees it all, and he knows all. He knows who or what we're worshiping, and he's saying, you are not to have other gods before me. The Bible says in some other places um, that God is a jealous God. And that is another way to say this. We have a call for a singular devotion to God. The issue that is at stake here in, in the first commandment is exclusive loyalty. We are to refuse all rival loyalties, all false gods, 
and we are to worship God alone. He is to be the highest. He is to be the supreme. Okay, so the root of all sin, in essence, is to give that love and that worship that rightfully belongs to God to something or someone else. What do we call that? Idolatry. God has entered into a relationship with us And in that pursuit of us and in that securing of that relationship through grace and through mercy, it is now one of exclusive covenant loyalty. Let's think of it this way. If I came to Holly after church tonight and said, babe, um, I need to talk to you about something. I know we're married, you know, and I know we made a covenant to one another and to be a one, you know, a union, you know, just, just you and me. Um, There is someone else that I would like to include into this relationship, and I hope that that's okay. Um, I'd really like to just sort of take like a both-and approach to this moving forward. I hope you won't be angry about that or jealous about that, but uh, I just, I, I wonder if that would be okay. And let me just say, like, even saying that as an illustration tonight uh, is super uncomfortable for me because I know what Holly's response should be, but I know what I, I, I should have never suggested in the first place. Now, the reason why it's hard for me to even say the illustration, and honestly, for some of you that are married here tonight, I hope all of you feel the uncomfortableness of the analogy. The reason why that doesn't work is because you and I have hardwired in us this reality. Marriage is a picture of what God is talking about here. If we can feel that strongly about marriage and that covenant and that oneness and that jealousy, that right jealousy, we should know that forsaking everything else is right. There is never a both and kind of thing in marriage. It's me and it's Holly. That's it. God's point here is that I have entered into a relationship with you that is deeper and wider than even your own marriage. I have made a covenant to you, and now I want you to make a covenant to me of one of exclusive loyalty. I I am calling you to be devoted to me solely. Don't divide your loyalties. Don't give your worship. Don't, don't, Don't give your attention to lesser things. Worship me. See, the wisdom of this commandment is that it doesn't deny that there are false gods. The world abounds with them. And we've, we've talked about idolatry a lot here at Mercy View, and, and we've said this before, but even good things can become rivals for the worship that alone belongs to God. The thing that we don't often realize that it is, that we think is impossible for us to live without, is the very thing that's getting in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Something else is at the center of our worship. So really the commandment is a a question for us, and it's this, will we give our heart to God? Or will we give it to someone else or something else? God says, don't have any other gods before me. 
Don't put anything else in front of me. Now, the modern world that you and I swim in has developed so many God substitutes that it's almost hard to distinguish between, like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Am I, you know, how, how, where do I find the line of my worship for God? And it, it gets, um, I think sometimes we, we make it more complicated than it needs to be, but part of it is we are swimming in a culture that is tempting us at every turn to say, yeah, put your trust in me. Give me your worship. In his larger catechism, Luther asked this question, what is it to have a God? Listen to what he says. A God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. Hmm. Then he says, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is really your God. He might as well have written that in 2022. But God is coming to us in the first commandment and saying, you can't live free until you realize that there's only one God and you're not it. Now that's going to be hard for some of you here tonight. I just said, you are not the center of the universe. You're not the most important person in the world. The reason I think many times that you and I find ourselves distraught, confused, miserable, depressed, is because we're worshiping ourselves. And you and I weren't made for that. We were made to worship Him. We were made to enjoy Him. We were made to glorify Him. And when that begins to happen and we make Him the center of our life, we are orbiting around Him, something happens. The very thing that we were looking for in all of those lesser little G-gods, we start to find. Because the source of those things, the one who is those things in and of Himself, is able to give them to us. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. God's supremacy fosters freedom. Here's what I mean. What do you live for? Who do you live for? Who or what can you not live without? Who or what do you run to in times of need? What causes your highest joy or your lowest grief? What does your schedule orbit around? What does your budget orbit around? What does your emotional life orbit around? Whatever your answer to those questions, whatever the answer to those questions are, it's likely that those things are what I would call your functional God. It's the God you put before Father God. The pattern of verses 1 and 2 and then into verse 3 make all the difference if we want to experience the freedom that God has for us. One of the most important things, we talked about this in our series in Romans recently, uh, that we need to understand in the Christian life is how we navigate what are called the indicatives of Scripture, the statements about who God is, who we are, 
the context of his grace towards us, and the imperatives of Scripture, the commands or the instructions that the Scriptures lay out, like the Ten Commandments here in Exodus 20. See, gaining freedom from sin means that you and I need to first and foremost be Exodus 21 and 2 people. Gaining freedom from from sin means that, that you and I first need to live in and experience the, the being statements of the Scriptures, the indicatives. Indicatives are, are where it all begins because those are truths that must be believed. But here's what's happening in Exodus 20 as we think about this pattern, verses 1 and 2, as we move into verse 3. True belief does more, though, than just acknowledge things to be true. Belief acts upon it. So when action is added to belief, it serves to strengthen belief, which in turn leads to more action. And so what you're going to find many times in the Scriptures, we see it in in living color here in Exodus, the beginning of Exodus 20, is that indicatives and imperatives are connected And the progressive application of indicatives and imperatives in our lives results in, and this is what God is trying to show us tonight, in freedom. Here's what we need to ask of our hearts this evening. When it comes to how you think about your spiritual growth, do you have a tendency towards the indicatives or towards the imperatives? Some of us just want to do something. We're doers. While others love spending more time thinking and meditating on the truths or reasons behind spiritual growth, I tend to be that guy. There seems to be why people and what people in the, in the Christian world. Again, that, that's a crude, I mean, it's, you know, there's always overlap, I get that. But do we have, the question we need to ask ourselves, do we have the indicative and imperative sort of cycle balanced in our lives? Perhaps because of your personality or your reaction to your church background or maybe just the season of life that you find yourself in, you may need to think through whether your spiritual focus should be directed towards indicatives or imperatives. And you may find that over a a period of time, you're going back and forth on all that. I mean, that's what I find. But some of you are in a war with sin right now, and sometimes the battle requires not just theory, but strategy. You have other gods before big G God. But some of you may need to just spend more time digging into and discovering the beautiful realities of verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. You need to read some great literature. You need to meditate on God as your rescuer. Listen to some great sermons about from Exodus. Just read some commentaries. The point of what I'm trying to say is that God uses both his indicatives in the scriptures and his commandments, his imperatives, to bring freedom to you, flourishing to you. And when we live within that reality, those realities, we thrive in the freedom we have in God, which he desires to give us. God's supremacy fosters freedom. Let me end here. When you and I go to law, we're going to see this in this series. We're going to see the ways in which we fail to do what he's asked of us. 
man, I, I, I mean, I know I'm standing up here, but like to be confronted with the question, do I have any other gods before Father God in my life? The answer is yes. And you do too. But the law, in part, is that's like part of its job. And that's what we're going to see in this series. We're going to be faced up to things we can't do and haven't done. Things we failed to do. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that in the places where we have failed, Jesus has not. Jesus wants to do for us and and through us what we can't do for ourselves. Because you're still going to be tempted to sin. You're still going to fail. You're not going to be able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly just because we're going through a series on it. (laughs) But when you're tempted to sin, I, I, I hope that you understand the Father's heart. That God is your Father. He's rescued you. He saved you from your spiritual slavery. That's what the Psalms say when your Heavenly Father says, don't do that. Remember the heart of your Father in that. Don't just look at the law, but look in the face of the lawgiver. And now that the lawgiver comes to us in the Ten Commandments with instructions on how to be free, we need to remember that his heart is a heart of love towards us. He desires to give us an abundant life. So, friend, even tonight as we come to the table, these elements are a picture of that love. That in our failings, in the ways that you and I come way short of obeying even something like these Ten Commandments, God's grace is greater still. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.